So let's take a look at the Word of God today. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, verse 13 through 19. Now, I want to start with a, a couple of stories from history. I'm a little bit of a history geek. I hope you'll indulge me if you're not into that sort of thing. Um, but it's 1940, and the Nazi army is unstoppable. They've rolled through Europe almost uncontested. The Belgians and Dutch gave way quickly. The French had the largest army in Europe, but they surrendered within days. The United States isn't ready for war. Even if we wanted to be, we weren't ready, and we didn't want to in 1940. Most of America was determined to stay out of the war in Europe. No foreign wars was our creed. So there was nothing between the Nazis and complete domination of the northern hemisphere except the tiny island of Great Britain and their indomitable leader, Winston Churchill. The British army, though, was in trouble. Right, right, right in 1940 when we're talking about, they were, they were trapped on a, on a beach in a, near a town called Dunkirk in France. 225,000 British soldiers along with 100,000 of their allies stranded on this beach with the German army on one side and the waters of the English Channel on the other. They were pinned there and they were one step away from complete annihilation, either death or capture. The, the British Navy had only enough ships to rescue maybe 17,000. That's less than 5% of the people that needed to be rescued. Churchill had already told Parliament, get ready. There are hard and heavy tidings coming. And then at, at the most amazing thing happened. A strange sight appeared in the waters of the channel, a, a flotilla of ships like no one had ever seen before. They were fishing boats, tugboats, sailboats, ferries, yachts, trawlers, all driven by civilians, men too old to fight, men uh, not in good enough health to fight, people driving, piloting their own vessels, their personal boats, dodging artillery from the Germans, pulled up on the coast of France and picked up fighting men. And in the end, in the miracle of Dunkirk, 338,000 people were evacuated and lived to fight again. And if that hadn't happened... If that hadn't happened, think about what the world would be like today. I mean, just simply put, the forces of evil were about to win. Tyranny was about to conquer, and ordinary people stepped up and saved the day. And if they hadn't, the last 75 years of human history would be very different. And I might be preaching right now in German. <laughs> we might have had sauerkraut for breakfast. But we're still, our world would be significantly less free. That's a great story, the miracle at Dunkirk. Look it up, I promise. It's in there, Wikipedia, even it. Um, I got a better story than that, though. 2,000 years ago, God's only son came in the form of a man named Jesus, and he came for one purpose. He came to give his life for our sins, to open a door to salvation so we could all be free, so we could all have a personal relationship with God and spend eternity with him. And he had to die but he knew that after he died and, and he left this world, he knew that someone had to carry his message on. He did the important part, but someone had to make sure that everyone heard there is a way to get to God now, a way to be saved. Someone had to carry that message, and he chose ordinary people, ordinary 
men and women. Jesus chose a small group of true believers when we, the people of this world, were trapped between the forces of evil and the bondage of our own sin, and there was no way out. He chose ordinary men and women and said, go, take my message. Go, take my grace. Go, take my good news. And that was the beginning of what we call the church, a movement that saved the world. You want to talk about the impact Jesus made on the world? You, gotta, you, you, can't, you can't talk about it without talking about the church. And I know, I know we're, we're evangelical Christians, and so we're all about, hey, the church doesn't save you. And I, I agree totally. I mean, sitting in a church pew doesn't save you any more than sitting in a garage makes you a Buick. The church can't save you. Jesus saves you, but... The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. You can't follow Jesus without loving his church, without being a part of his body. So that's what we want to talk about today. And, and we want to talk about how that mission began, that brilliant, unexpected idea, this ragtag armada, so to speak, that we call the church. It starts in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? By the way, that's the question he asks every one of us. And how we answer it is not just with our minds or with our mouths, it's with our lives. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven heaven. This is one of the more controversial passages in the New Testament. Many of you are, perhaps are familiar with it. For some of you, this might be new, but we'll touch on the controversial part, but mainly I want to look at four things Jesus said in this passage, four phrases, and let's just talk about what he was really saying. First of all, when he says, upon this rock, what is he talking about? Upon this rock, he was talking to a man named Simon, the son of Jonah, one of Jesus' first disciples, a fisherman. But when Jesus met him, he walked up and gave him a nickname. That's a little unusual way to meet somebody. Walk up and say, hey, I'm going to call you tiny. I'm going to call you slim. I'm going to call you lefty. Jesus walks up and says, your name will be Peter. And that's Petros. That's the word rock. Cephas, Kepha in Aramaic, the language Jesus spoke. You're going to be rock. You're, you're moody and unstable and, and way out of control, but you're going to be my, my foundation my stone upon which I'll build things. And that's what he's saying here. I'm going to build my church on you. Now, what does he mean when he says, I will build my church? The interesting thing about Jesus saying my church is when Jesus spoke those words, there was no such thing as the church. There were synagogues where, where Jewish people gathered in local areas and, and shared the word of God and prayed together. But there wasn't a Christian church yet. Jesus had disciples who followed him around, but nowhere else in the Gospels are those, is that group called a church. Jesus used a word, actually Matthew used the word ekklesia. It's a Greek word, ekklesia. 
that's translated church here. And it literally means gathering or community or assembly. If you would have been in the Greek world in that time, anytime you saw a group of people gathered together for a common purpose, you would have said, oh, that's an ecclesia. Jesus took that word and he gave it to his people. He was essentially saying, I am building a new kind of people. I am gathering people to myself, people who are willing to follow me, a new kind of people, my ecclesia, my community, my gathering, and I'm going to start with this guy, Simon Peter. Now, let's take a time out for a moment because that's the controversial part. You're probably aware that some Christians interpret that to mean that Peter had a special standing within God's church, that from this point on, he would be the unquestioned, infallible leader, that everything he, he said came from God, and then whoever he appointed to follow after him would follow in that line, and so on until the present day, whoever follows in the line of Peter has this un, unquestioned, infallible word from God, and, and what he says goes, he should be the leader of the church. That's the way some people interpret this. But here's what I say. While I, I agree that those are, are brothers and sisters in Christ and I cherish them, I disagree with them on this, and here's why. If Peter was the unquestioned, infallible leader of the church, the church certainly didn't seem to realize that. They didn't treat him that way. Give you some evidence. Ver, uh, Acts chapter 8, the church, the church, that's people like you and me, sent Peter and John out on a mission. Peter and John didn't tell others to go. The church told Peter and John to go. In Acts 11, Peter comes back after preaching the gospel to Gentiles, and the church is upset with him. They don't say, oh, Peter did it, so it must be okay. He has to win them over and persuade them that what he did was right. In Galatians 2, here's your ultimate evidence. In Galatians 2, Paul publicly rebukes Peter. In front of everybody, he says, Peter, you're wrong. And give him credit, credit uh, Peter says, absolutely, you're right. I was wrong and repents. That doesn't sound like an unquestioned, infallible leader to me. That sounds like an ordinary man who's trying his best to serve God and makes mistakes here and there, okay? So let's put that to bed. Let's get back to what Jesus is saying. The third thing, the third phrase I want to look at, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, I'm reading out of the NIV. I grew up reading the King James Version, and that reads, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's how I always hear this in my head how some of you do as well. And so growing up, hearing, uh, I will build my church upon this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what I thought Jesus was saying was, my people are going to be so strong that even Satan himself won't be able to stop them. All the forces of evil banded against the people of God won't be able to stop them. The problem with that interpretation, two things actually. Number one, it, it assumes that hell is the headquarters of the devil. You know, sort of like Moscow was the headquarters of communism back in the days of the Cold War. But the problem with that is, the Bible is very clear. The devil doesn't live in hell on a little fiery throne with his pitchfork and his horns. Hell is a place, according to Revelation, where the devil will go someday, very much against his will. But it's not his headquarters, it's his final destination. Second problem with that idea is Jesus, when he says Hades or hell, he uses a Greek word, Hades. Now, everywhere else in Scripture, when Jesus is talking about the place we know of as hell, the place where we are destined to go apart from God's grace, he uses a Greek word, Gehenna, which has an interesting uh, story to it as well. But that's the word he uses, Gehenna. The word Hades refers to death or the realm of the dead. 
So I think what Jesus is saying is, my church is never going to die. The world can throw whatever they want to at my church. Persecution, ridicule, obstacles of all kinds, and my church will overcome everyone. My church will never end. Fourth, fourth thing I want to look at is keys to the kingdom. He says, I am giving you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What is he talking about there? I believe he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the good news. What he's saying is, when I get done with what I'm here to do, you're going to have a story so incredible, the greatest story anybody's ever heard, that every person you tell will be changed by it. They'll either, they'll either reject me completely or they'll turn to me. And if they turn to me because of that story, their lives will be transformed. And people who are addicted will be broken. Their, their addictions will be broken. Their families will be reunited. Their, their old habits that have been destroying them and others will be totally renounced. They will be transformed, and they'll spend eternity with God, all because of the story you're going to have after I'm gone, the good news of how we can know God personally. That's the keys to the kingdom, because when you tell that story, what happens on earth changes heaven. It's amazing. So this was the beginning of the greatest movement that's ever happened. And here's the interesting thing. After Jesus says this amazing thing to Peter, can you imagine the Son of God himself says, you're my rock, and I'm going to start my work with you. You're the point man. I, everybody else is going to be added on after you. You're the, you're the first guy in. You would think that Peter's life was changed from then on, and he would never again make another mistake you know, a guy who, who walked around with his foot in his mouth like a two-year-old with a pacifier, he would have been completely different. But you'd be wrong. If you go on and read the rest of the chapter, you see that the very next thing that happens, the very next day, 24 hours hadn't even passed, and Peter has offended Jesus so deeply, Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. And he's not saying that ironically. He's not laughing inside. He is he is angry at Peter. Peter has hurt him deeply, just that quickly. And if you and I were standing there, if we were one of the other disciples, we probably would have said, hey, um, Jesus, you want to rethink that whole upon this rock thing? You know, maybe look at me instead. It doesn't get better for Peter, by the way. The night before Jesus died, he's, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying for his life, literally. He's asking his best friends to pray with him, and Peter falls asleep. And then promptly wakes up when they come to arrest Jesus and runs away after cutting off a guy's ear. Good job, Peter. He has, he has another chance, though. He has a chance to redeem himself. He's confronted three different times by people who say, weren't you with him? And each time he says, no, I don't even know the man, and finally runs away terrified, anguished, filled with tears and regret. And I ask you this question. Put yourself in that story. Imagine you're a bystander, you're not a Christian, you're not a skeptic, you're just an ordinary citizen of Jerusalem who's been following all these events, and you walk down to the hill of the skull, and you see Jesus of Nazareth hanging on a cross, dying slowly. You see none of his followers there, just a, a few of the women who were closest to him. That's it. Everybody else fled for the hills. And if someone would have asked you right then, how much time do you give? the movement Jesus started? How long do you think these people will stick together? How long do you think they'll keep saying he was Messiah? You would have said they'll be done in a month. 
On the other hand, here's Rome, the Roman Empire, most powerful empire in human history at that time with incredible technology, military might, sophisticated leadership, laws, thinking, the the whole ball of wax. You would have said, Rome's going to last forever. The movement of Jesus is going to be done in a couple of weeks. And you would have been wrong. Because today, Rome is ancient history, literally. And the movement Jesus started is the largest, most influential movement in human history. It's amazing to think about. But we have to be honest, don't we? The church today is not necessarily seen in a great light in this country and many others. You talk to an ordinary unbeliever today about, you try to strike up a a spiritual conversation, and many of them will jump immediately to some of our biggest stains. They'll talk about the Crusades and all the blood that was spilled in the name of religion all throughout the Middle Ages. They'll talk about the Inquisition and and the many attempts, uh, other attempts to enforce religious truth on people who were unwilling. They'll talk about how in this country, churches in the South Some of my my own grandparents supported segregation and pretended the Bible actually backed them up on it. And further back, generations before that, supported slavery. They'll talk about the coddling of abusive priests and other scandals that crop up all over this country in churches just like ours. And what we can say to that is, number one, that's proof that churches are full of sinful people. It's not proof that Jesus isn't real. It's just proof they can't live up. We can't live up to his teachings. That's why we need grace. Number two, we can say, if you weigh the evidence objectively, if you look at all that God has been able to do through his people, the church, even in spite of our many flaws, the church, the people of God, whatever denomination, as long as they're following Jesus, are the most beneficial organization or movement that has ever been on the face of this earth. And I'll give you just one story as evidence. Robert Woodbury, secular sociologist, was doing a study of third world countries, countries in the developing world, and he noticed that some of those nations have um, healthier nations than others. Some of those nations have better, more stable democratic government, better health care, better infrastructure, better educational systems, more rights for the poor, for women. He said, what makes the difference between the third world countries that tend to do things well and give their citizens a good life and those where things are just a quagmire, they're awful? And here's what he discovered. The difference between those two nations is nations that are healthy today are nations who in the 1800s had a significant presence of Protestant missionaries. That's it. That's the only common thread he could find. 200 years ago, Protestant missionaries showed up and spread the gospel. In fact, here's what he said. His, his, his quote was, his money quote was, if you want a healthy country today, the very best thing you could do is go back in time 200 years and bring missionaries to your country. Just the presence of the gospel changed everything. And that's just one story. And in light of that, you just have to admit, you have to say the church is the most beneficial organization the world has ever seen because it was instituted by Jesus. And yet, and yet, we can't sit back on our laurels. When I was in seminary, one of my professors asked a question that's, that's haunted me ever since. He said, 
if the church that you attend now folded this Sunday, this Sunday was their last day, they closed the doors and they were done for good. And on that same day, all the garbage men in town went on strike. Who would the people of your city miss more? Let that sink in for a moment. While the garbage bags are piling up and nobody's there to carry it off, would they miss us or would they miss the garbage men? Here at First Baptist, we have a vision for the future of this church that I'm excited about, that makes me excited to come to work every day. This is a great church. It's been here 125 years. God's done amazing things here. This church has built some incredible programs, but guess what? When the, when the world was dying and, and destined to spend eternity apart from God, desperately in need of salvation, God didn't send a church program. He sent a person. God never died for programs. God sent his son to die for people. God doesn't love programs. God loves people. Here's what I mean by that. We're calling on God to renovate the heart of this church so that we become a church that doesn't produce great programs. We produce great people. And what that looks like, I believe, is someday every member of this church is going to be able to say, here's my mission field. It's my workplace. It's my family. It's my neighborhood, my little cul-de-sac I live on, my, my social circle, my kids' friends, my softball team that I play on, or, or my kids that, I, that come to me for piano lessons. It's who God has brought into my life. I am the missionary to that group. Every single one of us will be able to identify our mission field, and we'll be telling them the story as God gives us opportunity We'll be telling them the story, and the keys of the kingdom will be on our side. And what we saw this morning with three of our teenagers standing up there saying, this is the best day of my life, I'm publicly identifying myself with Christ, we'll see that every Sunday, and not just with teenagers, and not just with little ones, but with people in their middle years and people in their later years. And we'll see husbands coming back home, and we'll see people walking away from the habits that have destroyed them, and we'll see transformation on a regular basis. That's, that's the vision of this church. That's what can happen if we let God renovate our hearts so that church isn't about us and it isn't about our preferences and it isn't about giving us what we need. It's about us being equipped to be missionaries in our community, disciple makers who produce great people. I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm excited I get excited about the future of this church. I'll be honest, I'd be excited anyway because I enjoy doing what I do and y'all pay me to do it, and that's fantastic. But I'd much rather, I would much rather see what God does with us as we let him renovate our hearts and turn our hearts outward and our eyes beyond these stained glass windows to the people all around us, the people he has brought into our lives providentially. So we can bring them this good news. So let me, let me leave you with these four questions, actually three questions. Number one, am I doing my part? This is a question, these are questions you need to ask yourself. Write them down if you need to, meditate on them this week. Am I doing my part? If every person here was as committed as I am, what kind of church will we be? If every person gave like I gave, could we do more or less? If every person prayed like I pray, would this church be more empowered or less? If every person served as diligently as I do, would we be more powerful in the community or less? See, what I want to see happen 
is that we change so many lives through the power of Christ. We, we reconcile so many families and change so many workplaces because the boss gets saved and it becomes a different place. We change so many lives through the witness of Christ that even people who don't attend here say, thank God for First Baptist Church. Are you doing your part? Second question, second question. Am I praying for God's power to renovate our hearts, to make us a people-transforming, disciple-making church? Am I praying for God's power to renovate our hearts? God can do that. I can't. God needs to renovate my heart as well as yours. Are you praying for that renovation daily? Third question, am I praying for God's revival for all the churches of our city and nation? I will gladly tell you we are not the only church that matters. There are dozens of other churches right here in this city, in this county. There are thousands in this country. And we differ with other churches on various issues, but if they're preaching the name of Jesus Christ, there are brothers and sisters, and we need to pray for God to do a, a work in them just like we're praying for him to do a work in us because the world needs the gospel, and God chooses to use his people, the church, his ragtag armada, to rescue the perishing to evacuate those who are lost and would otherwise die. Are you praying for that revival daily? The exciting thing is, because I know some of us are sitting here saying, that all sounds wonderful, and, and I'm sure there are people in this church who are game for that sort of vision and, and, and have the equipment, you know, the, the personal morality and the character and, and the uh, outgoing nature, but I'm just not one of them. Jeff, I'm, I'm just not one of them. I, I'm, I'm not that good, and, and I'm not that useful. You need to remember, and if you read the Gospels, you'll see, the people Jesus chose, they weren't the smartest, they weren't the most eloquent, they weren't the most moral. They were ordinary people. And all the time he was alive, they screwed up left and right. They were cowardly, they were clueless. But all of a sudden, the book of Acts begins, Jesus has gone off the scene, and the book of Acts begins, and somehow they're completely different. These people who were terrified of the Sanhedrin, the council that crucified Jesus, all of a sudden they're standing in front of the Sanhedrin saying, beat us if you want to, kill us if you want to, we're still going to keep on preaching. They were eloquent, they were powerful, they, they healed people with a touch of a hand, they preached sermons, unprepared sermons, and thousands walked the aisle and got saved. They turned the world upside down. And the only thing that changed between the first part of the story and the second is that the Son of God died for them. And because the Son of God laid down his life for them, the Holy Spirit came into them and they were transformed. And I say that to say this, you may think you're weak and you're foolish and you've got no potential. God can change you and make you exactly who he needs you to be to accomplish what he created you to accomplish. And through you, that same power can change everyone you know. All you need to do is say yes to him.